0: Welcome to Wide-mindedness with Victoria Ball, the podcast in which I interview expert guests who want to join me in celebrating that life is not black and white. Our society is increasingly divided, and the us-versus-them mentality seems to dominate our conversations and relationships with others. I believe that life is much richer when we widen our minds to consider multiple opinions and perspectives. So challenge your assumptions and let's become truly wide-minded together. Welcome to part three of an interview I recorded with Eamon Guerin, a specialist in all things Middle East. He talks to me about the Islamic Golden Age and when part two left off we were talking about how King Offa of Mercia, you might know him because of Offa's Dyke, was minting coins that had Latin inscriptions as well as what
1: appeared to be Arabic inscriptions. So far that a king of Mercia is trying to emulate coins that have Arabic inscriptions on as a means I would argue of opening up Uh, a form of diplomacy, an economic Mm. diplomacy, a form of common currency, no pun intended, Hmm. so that we could have better, if not integration, at least understanding between these very different people. I mean, that that coin is there. Uh, He didn't do it just because it it looked pretty. There was definitely an outreach going on. Um, But that's way back in the 8th century. Uh,
0: Not insignificant period where there was this notion of engaging with people outside your own group and your own type. Absolutely. I really became so interested in this period uh, when I was traveling and studying in southern Spain uh, in, my, in my teenage years. And it's interesting because like you, I was there actually studying um, Spanish language, but also the Inquisition and the, the bits of European history that we tend to learn about in, in a Western curriculum. But it was then that I became so fascinated. I saw the, the Obviously, the incredible palace, the Alhambra, and and discovered the cities of Cordoba and Granada, Sevilla, and it's it's there that I would like to, although in a slightly different period to when they were built, uh, I'd like to jump to that space now, uh, the Iberian Peninsula, because I'd love you to introduce us to Moses Maimonides and tell mm. us a bit more about him.
1: Oh, mm. well, you know, another fascinating character. Mm. It's. <laughs> You know, I was brought up uh, as an Irish Catholic. Uh, you know, my knowledge of Judaism uh, begins pretty much uh, with my arrival at university as an undergraduate to read theology. Um, and that's when I start looking at uh, the Jewish faith. And of course, I've got many Jewish friends both from the Middle East um, and, and beyond. But uh, Maimonides is the name that comes up again and again. Uh, you know, he's a 12th century uh, individual uh, who is said again and again to be the greatest Scholar of Jewish law and scripture that ever lived. Um, And he was born into a period in history where Cordoba had been uh, one of the greatest cities on earth. Um, But it was about to come to an end. Not the greatness of Cordoba, but the peace and security that was afforded to Jews and Muslims living in that city. Um, And that's really interesting because we had the rise of another Muslim power called the Almohads. And when the Almohads arrive and take over Cordoba and surrounding areas, they prove themselves to be extremely intolerant. Um, And it's at that time that uh, Jewish families such as Maimonides and Muslim families are either put to the sword or sent into exile. And those that convert aren't ever fully trusted. Um, And so uh, whilst we're not leaving uh, Andalusia quite yet, at the age of 13, Maimonides and his family are forced to flee um, and they go into exile. So there they are, refugees.
0: Refugees,
1: yes. Absolutely, looking for a, a better life, somewhere that's safe and secure. And after a number of years of travel across North Africa and, and, and sojourns in different places, they find themselves being welcomed into the capital of another caliphate that exists at the time, and that's the Fatimid caliphate, the only Shia Muslim caliphate in history that had its um, capital in Cairo. And there, this Jewish family is welcomed, Um, And you know they're welcomed, because when the um, uh, Fatimids are are defeated um, in the year uh, 1171 by a name that I'm sure we all know, Saladin. So Saladin is the one uh, Muslim name probably we knew at school growing up. Saladin conquers the Fatimids and employs Maimonides to be one of his physicians. Um, You know, again, another example of an enlightened ruler seeing the best talent around And keeping hold of it. Um, But I think I've taken us away from Andalusia too soon. Let's go back, (laughs) shall we, to the glory that was Cordoba. Um, So Maimonides is born in 1135, uh, uh, probably 100 years before that, the year 1000 roughly. uh, Cordoba was perhaps the most advanced. Uh, Metropolitan area uh, on Earth, except with the exception, I should say, of uh, a a city or two in China that would have a similar population of around 500, 600,000, which is astonishing, really. I mean, cities go up and down. Um, I mean, uh, ancient Rome is reckoned to be the first city on Earth that had a population of a million. Um, Mm. But by the year 1,000, it was down to tens of thousands. I mean, it's just been. Destroyed and depopulated, but so Cordoba's on the up at this stage. Um,
0: and that's <laughs> that's a big population for this period.
1: Yeah, it is. Mm. And and what they provided was not just security, but there were um, public facilities. I think that's really interesting. You know, mm. when, when a state invests in things like bathhouses, mm. um, there were there were bathhouses in Cordoba um, at this period of of, of Muslim rule. When to bathe was still being condemned in Christendom as as a, as a dangerous act, uh, <laughs> I'm glad I rather have lived in Cordoba, I think, than yes. in Christendom at the same time. <laughs> uh, I mean, even in as far as Germany, it was the writer who came back from their travels and spoke of Cordoba as being the ornament of the world. It's, yes. a, it's a lovely phrase which was taken up as the title for a book about excellent book uh, Cordoba. Yeah, it yeah, is good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah,
0: María Rosa Menocal. It's a it, brilliant thank book. You. Really, really good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a there's a scholar that I'm going to bring in now just because I I really like the way he phrases this and it, and it takes us away from any criticism that we're glossing over uh, the difficulties that citizens had and that's Bernard Lewis Bernard Lewis was was a great scholar of Middle Eastern history who in later years spoke more about contemporary events in the Middle East and uh, and when he did so I think he wasn't perhaps as careful as he had been in his earlier academic work shall we say. <laughs> But speaking about uh, Cordoba at this time, you know, he would say that Jews and Christians uh, in Cordoba were second-class citizens. But, he said, they were citizens nonetheless, and they had rights afforded them that no Jew or Muslim in Europe had. So it's worth saying that it might not have been perfect, but they had legal protections that would not have been extended to... Um, Jews and Muslims, I say, in in Europe at the time. So that's important. They were protected under the law. Um,
0: And and that is why I keep making this point um, to whenever we discuss one of these people or characters, to keep thinking, who do I know from European history or who do I know from history I have learned? Because it's so important to keep reminding ourselves When we're talking about, because you're right, this is not something, this um, acceptance of and tolerance of of different beliefs and backgrounds and uh, races or ethnicities. This this was not commonplace at this time.
1: Well, just the moment we're talking about before the rise of the Almohads who, who upset everything. You, know, yes. you could travel from Cordoba right across North Africa. I mean, many people travel by ship. It, it was often safer than by land because of local banditry. But if you were in any of the major population centers, any city in um, Andalusia, North Africa, uh, uh, as far as Cairo, then, you know, through to Baghdad, you would find a synagogue and a church. You would find places of worship for you in those cities. Incredible. You didn't find them in Europe. Why not? Well, perhaps because there were no um, uh, Muslim travellers coming to Europe. Again, why not? Because there was nothing there. The money, the trade, the mm. success was all located in, in those Muslim uh, polities at the time. Uh, you know, Europe just wasn't an attractive bet uh, for, for travellers from the Middle East. I mean, sure, there, there are travellers that came through. I'm not saying there were none at all. But there wasn't the volume that allowed them to be able to find a mosque or a synagogue in any Uh, sort of town or or city of of significant size in Europe Mm -hmm. um there's there's a a pope that I'd like to bring in if I may please um Pope Sylvester um who was the first French-born pope I think I'm right in saying and his his rule was from the year 999 um Mm -hmm. until 1003 or 1004 Mm -hmm. well Sylvester pops into my head because uh, to my knowledge he's the only pope that was fluent in Arabic Um, And he was fluent in Arabic because he'd been to Andalusia and studied both there and um, in modern day Morocco. Uh, And he'd studied Mm. Arabic. And he is often credited with bringing the uh, abacus and Arabic slash Hindu numerals into Mm. Europe. Uh, Not entirely successfully because 200 years after his his death, um, there were still moves to uh, try and have these uh, Saracenic numbers banned. Hmm. by vested interests who'd rather keep on using Roman numerals. But if you've ever, you know, worked with Roman numerals, (laughs) uh, perhaps tallying up your shopping bill or whatever, you can see it's a great deal easier to use the so-called Arabic numbers that came originally from India. Um, So Pope Sylvester, when when he became Pope, he was attacked by his critics as as having uh, become a Muslim in secret, that he was in league with the devil. And all of this because he, he spoke Arabic. Um, and he spoke mm. Arabic because that's where the greatest scholarship was taking place at the time.
0: But opening up so many avenues Sorry. here. <laughs> no, <I'm, laughs> I'll have to just do a whole series with you. <laughs> um, now, could you tell me, was it Maimonides who said that that incredibly uh, enlightened phrase, the, the one about teach your tongue?
1: It is wonderful, isn't it? Uh, and it's advice for any parent as well with young children, I think. Maimonides wrote, teach your tongue to say, I do not know, and you will make progress. Um, it, it's very important to own up to the limitations. Uh, you know, it's it's again a development of that the ancient Greeks' idea that you know the wise man is the one who knows what he doesn't know. Yes, you know, you, you keep searching, you keep searching, and, and and Maimonides, I mean, he what a life he had. One of the other great, um, uh, one of his writings is a, is a marvelous line where he says, "Do not consider it proof just because it is written in books." For a liar who will deceive with his tongue will not hesitate to do the same with his pen, hmm. isn't that <laughs> yeah. clever isn't it
0: terribly clever and so <laughs> relevant at all points of history, yeah,
1: throughout history, indeed, you know it was definitely his scholarship, his knowledge, his wisdom, his his insight into human frailty as well as his understanding of Jewish texts, you know it was definitely formed by being able to spend time with uh, Christian and Muslim uh, scholars and religious men and to have uh, argument and debate and think about why they believe what they believe and, you know, um, developing his ideas as a result of this, both in, in Andalusia and in Fatimid and later uh, under Saladin Cairo. I mean, this is really important. His, yes. you know, his works, Maimonides' works though, you, you want to talk about reverberations and echoes. Um his uh, Maimonides wrote a wonderful book, a philosophical work called *The Guide for the Perplexed*, which sounds like mm. a, 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 a manual for our own times. Mm. Um, but this *Guide for the Perplexed* was, you know, studied and and uh, at length by the likes of Thomas Aquinas and, and wow. Duns Scotus and Miser Eckhart. You know, mm. these people in, in the in the you know, 13th century and, and beyond they didn't reject it because it was written by a Jew. They recognized the, the scholarship and the wisdom. Mm.
0: I love this idea of an openness to what we don't know. And for me, that's a pillar of wide mindedness. In the lecture series, you use a lovely quote from Bernard Lewis to indicate how this period really was a melting pot of different ideas and opinions. And I quote, the Islamic culture of the Middle East was the first culture that was truly international, intercultural, interracial, and in a sense, intercontinental. And its contribution, both direct and indirect to the modern world, is immense. Can I just ask you, why do you think this cultural openness, this uh, human flourishing, was able to take place at this time?
1: There are a lot of features here, certainly. Um, I know the, the, the great man theory of history isn't so popular these days. But in these times that we're talking about, when we didn't have democracies and regular election cycles with, you know, outcomes that would be respected by all parties, we have to acknowledge the role of individual rulers. You know, whether it's Roger II of Sicily or Harun al-Rashid, they they did have an important part to play. And as I've said before, the most successful of these uh, emirates or caliphates or kingdoms or princedoms were those of the enlightened rulers and you know i could give you a hundred names from this period to show to demonstrate that that very effectively now added to that i don't think it would be terribly easy to be an enlightened ruler who would invest um, by some estimates 30 percent in andalusia under um, um caliph abd al-rahman III. up to a third of his um, coffers were spent on education every year mm-hmm. um but that could only happen if you were at peace. I, yeah. I think that they had secured their borders; they had perhaps defeated everybody around them. Mm-hmm. But then they go beyond that to making alliances. And once there's peace and security and safe borders, and you can you can then not retreat behind the drawbridge, but say, okay, what have we got here? We don't have to spend that thirty percent of the budget or whatever it might be yeah, on a defense. bigger, uh, yes. bigger and better army. We can we can you know. Strengthen ourselves through knowledge. But again, that comes back to having an enlightened ruler. You you can't Mm. have one without the other.
0: What do you think its biggest contribution is or perhaps should be to the modern world?
1: I suppose the first answer that I would have given as a a naive schoolboy, had I come across this era at all, it would have been the scholarship that saved the works of the ancient Greeks and others. Right. I mean, that's... Mm. that that uh, if that was my final answer it would diminish the achievements of the golden age i'm not going to do that but let, let's just mm. look at that for a second if we may because it's inconceivable to go to university uh or to study at home philosophy these days without the ancient greeks mm. so try and conceive of that imagine had we not been fortunate to have had these works all of those works without exception saved thanks to the scholarship and translation movement of the islamic golden age what would you know a philosophy degree look like today it's mm. uh, it's hard to imagine and and not just philosophy as a subject but uh theories about democracy about citizenship about rights all of these things that came from ancient greece and, and they didn't start in ancient greece of course they were they had their own um, foundational blocks from other parts of the world and earlier civilizations too but The Islamic Golden Age, I think, we should see as a a bridge between different periods in history, and and, and we can't you can't get to the European Renaissance without this Islamic Golden Age bridging moment. Mm. Um, But that's not to diminish the Golden Age. There was so much more they did uh, for themselves: development of philosophy under Al Kindi, development of medicine under uh, Ibn Sina, better known in the West as Avicenna. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he wrote a, a medical manual that was still being taught in the University of Oxford, and the University of Paris, 700 years later. Incredible. Uh, You know, I I mean, if he were able to claim royalties on 700 years worth of textbooks, can you imagine? (laughs) Um, You know, that's serious scholarship. People weren't using him because they hated Muslims. They weren't using him because they needed to do him a favor. They used his, you know, um, a canon of medicine because it was a great work, which addressed... Mm all the ailments possible i, I mean the legacies they're, they're they're innumerable um the fountain pen was created during this period uh by a ruler who told his uh, advisors he was sick of getting ink on his clothes and he wow. wanted a closed chamber that could retain the ink without spilling and he could open it any time um this was this oh. came out of cairo under the fatimids too uh is that the greatest legacy i don't know <laughs> um <laughs>
0: But I I love this idea and I really wanted to leave listeners with this sense of, um, I I just love that so often this period is referred to in terms of its chronology and its time uh, as the Dark Ages. And I just really wanted to leave listeners with this notion of this glittering jewel of a civilization um, that we could mention the fountain pen, we could mention so many other inventions and ideas that were created and fostered during this period. And and it's only dark in so far as it's been forgotten in some of our minds as, as modern consumers of history. And I think that is just a, an image and a, a moment of um, wide mindedness, if you like, that I want to leave my listeners with both us to be wide minded in our approach to history and what we look at and what we research. But also this this notion that there was a, a an open minded period when cultural flourishing was allowed to develop and grow
1: there's there's a line that just came to me uh, from a writer called george kimball and it's a book he wrote about africa published in i think 1950 and there's a wonderful line that i use with uh, my my students whether they be diplomats or or university people and and he wrote the darkest thing about africa has always been our ignorance of it and I think that we could definitely use for the Islamic Golden Age and indeed the modern Middle East, that if we see it as a, a dangerous place, a place that we ought to be fearful of, it's probably because of our ignorance of the area and what's actually happening there. And the same would be true in, um, you know, the 10th century Baghdad, as it would in the 21st century.
0: Amen, Giran, it has been such a pleasure. I could listen to you talk about this for hours. It has been my total honour to have you on the Wide-Mindedness podcast. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for the invitation. I've enjoyed it thoroughly.
0: I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Wide-Mindedness with Victoria Ball. Help others learn about it by rating, reviewing and subscribing. For more great wide-minded content, follow... At Wide Mindedness Victoria Ball on Instagram, at Wide Mindedness on Twitter, and sign up to the monthly newsletter at Victoria Ball.com.